0: Welcome to Besieged, a podcast about Putin's invasion of Ukraine. I'm Peter Wazinski, and earlier this week, I spoke to Dr. Paul Madrell, a lecturer in political history and international relations here at Loughborough. I asked Paul what four months of brutal war had taught us about Putin's aims, how Putin's risk-taking approach to his invasion had affected his progress, and we also spoke about the possibility of Ukraine going nuclear. <laughs> Hi, Paul. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Um, do you want to start by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your background?
1: My name is Paul Madrell, and I'm a lecturer in international relations, politics, and history at Loughborough University. I'm a historian. I'm an international historian. I study above all uh, the international history of the 20th century, particularly European history in the 20th century, specializing in Germany above all, and I. Uh, examine also international relations in the 21st century, our own century, and I uh, focus my research now, I'm currently researching on the East German Stasi, the East German Security Service.
0: Excellent. Um, okay, so we're, we're a few months in now um, uh, in, into this conflict in Ukraine, and it's, it's taken a while for people to understand what Putin's um, Sort of plans were what do we know now what can you tell us about what's what putin's thinking
1: well a picture is now emerging we can see that russia has decided on a particular policy all we don't know is how hard it will push this policy but it's clear that in the early days of russia's invasion on the 24th of february putin expected the country to be conquered very quickly he expected very little resistance and he expected the government of president zelensky to flee into exile thus giving russia control of the whole of ukraine but the ukrainians resisted very bravely and with great determination and that plan failed so russia's forces are now focusing on the eastern uh, on the eastern part of ukraine which is the most russianized part of ukraine which they're clearly trying to occupy permanently so what putin's policy appears to be is to dismember ukraine to weaken it to weaken it permanently and to take that territory permanently into
0: Ukraine. That, was, has that changed then, since you mentioned he expected an easy, uh, an easy conquest it, to be over in a matter of weeks, maybe? Is, has his policy, has his plans changed then?
1: But it, it's, yes, I think so. I think he's moved to plan B. Frankly, he has a minimum strategic aim and a maximum strategic aim. He's been saying for years that Ukraine doesn't exist as a state. Hmm. He told President Bush, George W. Bush, in 2008, which is 14 years ago now, that Ukraine was not a state. Bush was at the time considering taking Ukraine into NATO, so that uh, Ukraine became a member state of NATO. And he put this to Putin at a summit. And Putin replied, but Ukraine isn't a state. It can't be a member state of NATO. So initially, he wanted the whole of Ukraine, on the ground that it's a region of Russia. Essentially, Ukrainians don't exist. That's what he was saying. So, and that is his maximum strategic aim. If he could achieve that, he would certainly try to. And that seems to be what he uh, initially intended.
0: And these, these plans, this, is, this isn't just something he's been um, concocting for the last few years. This, is, this goes back decades, doesn't it? His, his idea that Ukraine should be part of Russia.
1: Uh, well, it goes back hundreds of years of Russian history. Well, yeah. yeah, absolutely. The, the modern Russian state was born in Ukraine. It was absolutely born in Ukraine. And that's why he was attacking Kiev at the start, to seize Kiev, this, the center of government, and he was trying to murder President Zelensky. Numerous attempts were made by uh, special forces groups to, to assassinate President Zelensky. He wanted to destroy the government and drive the remnants into exile and take over the Ukraine. Mm. But that failed. The Ukrainians resisted, and they were, had been supplied. They'd already been supplied, they've been, uh, been receiving since 2014. Supplies of arms from NATO states, above all the United States. The United States has provided the, lion, provided the lion's share of the military assistance, and the best weaponry provided has come from the U.S. and that has greatly helped the Ukrainians in defending their country. So what he's done is choose those areas of Ukraine, which are the east, eastern Ukraine really, which are most Russianized during the Soviet era, uh, while the Soviet Union existed from 1917 to 1991. Ukraine was of course part of the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union was essentially a Russian empire, a communist empire run from Moscow. And uh, huge numbers of people were moved into Ukraine as it industrialized uh, under the Soviet dictatorship. And that industry is concentrated in the Eastern Ukraine. So lots of Russians moved there and Russian obviously became the dominant language. And uh, that is the core of Ukraine's industrial capacity that region that's what he's now trying to seize and he'll try, he'll try to dismember it so he's and that connects with the negotiations which have which have been underway now for a while but they're obviously not getting anywhere and they won't get anywhere the reason is both the russians and the ukrainians are making demands which to the other side is un, are unacceptable
0: so so we, we know that we know the the reasons or we you know we we think we know the reasons but what about the methods that he's using have have his methods changed um, just recently, um, there was a shopping centre which was hit, really, quite brutally hit by a Russian, Russian missile attack. Um, and his methods have been accused of, of being rather brutal. Um, what, what does that tell you about the way he's going about the war?
1: Well, he is going about it brutally. This is no more brutal than any other than war. No. What did Britain do to Dresden in 1945? It burned it to the ground. You know, what did Britain do to Hamburg in the Second World War? It burned it to the ground. What did Britain do to Berlin in World War II? More than 80% of all the housing stock of Berlin was damaged or destroyed by the Royal Air Force. You know, Britain burned out the middle of Hamburg, and there are great memorials to what the RAF did, which the Germans have preserved. But Putin is not doing anything that Britain and the United States have not themselves done. No, of course. He's going about it in a very brutal fashion, but war is brutal. Total war is brutal, and lots of civilians will die. So um, that's certainly the case. His Uh, policy is targeted against civilians to an unusual degree. Mm -hmm. A lot of what is being said about the brutality of his methods is Western propaganda. What do you expect the West to say? um, What do you expect NATO to say? Its interests are in conflict with those of Russia. So it's going to say that. It's absolutely good. Now there's no doubt that uh, um, Putin is a pitiless and amoral man. He's willing to 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 murder people. What he's well, there's, done there's in the accusations Syria of is, ethnic
0: cleansing as well, isn't there?
1: Well, the, uh, ethnic cleansing, that's a, a claim made by the Ukrainians. It has to be verified. The Ukrainian parliament's representative has informed the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees that 1.3 million Ukrainians, including 223,000 children, have been forcibly deported to Russia. Well, what that means is that Eastern Ukraine is being stripped of anyone who might be disloyal to a new Russian regime, Russian backed regime. That is straightforward ethnic cleansing. That's identical to what happened in Yugoslavia in the 1990s. It's a repeat of the Kosovo War. The reason for the Kosovo War was that Kosovo Albanians were being driven out of Kosovo by the Serbs. It's a repeat of Croatia. The Serbs were driven out of Croatia by the Tozman reg- regime. It's a repeat of Bosnia Bosnia Herzegovina, and the ethnic cleansing that took place there at the hands of Bosnian Serbs, and the Srebrenica massacre. It's a repeat of all those things. And the aim is to give Russia control of the eastern Ukraine. So Putin's methods are brutal to the extent that they are directed against civilians to an unusual degree. He's trying to control the whole of Ukraine, which means He has to get rid of civilians that makes it different from world war ii in world war ii britain and the united states were trying to defeat germany so they weren't that civilians were not their principal aim but civilians are putin's they're one of his principal aims he wants to control that territory so he is being brutal but remember war is always there's no war that's ever going to be nice the Firepower he's got available to him, and and he's certainly using it, heavy artillery and missiles, that is indeed very powerful. And directed against cities, it's doing terrible damage. But it's doing no more damage than the Allied Air Forces did to all the cities of Western Central Germany uh, in World War II. And where's where's all this leading then? Well, it's going to lead to... Russia clearly has basically three aims one to dismember Ukraine it would like to take over the whole of Ukraine but it'll dismember it taking eastern and southern Ukraine which will give it a land corridor down to Crimea which which it's already seized two it wants to weaken Ukraine militarily that alone that dismemberment will weaken uh, will weaken Ukraine because Ukraine will lose most of its industrial capacity, if Putin holds on to eastern Ukraine, it's lost most of its industrial economy. So it would be largely agrarian, and heavily dependent upon Western states. Two, it wants to uh, Russia is trying to weaken the military strength of Ukraine to make it less of a less of a uh, um, a threat to Russia. So what that will mean is, when if when negotiations re- reach some kind of agreement, lead to some kind of agreement. Russia will say, as a condition of that agreement, as a condition of peace, Ukraine will have to undertake not to join NATO, and not to cooperate with NATO. And they may try and go further and say, Ukraine will have to promise not to develop nuclear weapons. And Ukraine will have to accept a limit on the size of its armed forces. This is exactly what Russia did to Germany in 1990. Germany had to undertake never to develop nuclear weapons, which it did, and to cap its armed forces at 370,000 troops, Mm -hmm. which it did. But that makes it a second-rate military power. It can't resist Russia. So it may try and do the same. So those are its two major aims with regard to Ukraine. It's got a third aim. Its war is not only against Ukraine. Its war is against NATO. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And it's already said, it's already demanded that NATO undertake that all military infrastructure, which means all forces, all weapon systems, all command, control centers be withdrawn from every NATO member state which has joined NATO since 1997, which means the whole of Eastern Europe. So all NATO's forces and other military infrastructure would have to be withdrawn from the whole of Eastern Europe. Well, the Eastern Europeans would say NATO is now valueless to us. It's not protecting us. And that would essentially reverse the expansion of NATO. So NATO will say no to that, because the Eastern Europeans will demand that it say no. So Putin may get his first objective, which is the dismemberment of Ukraine, though the Ukrainians will fight very hard to prevent much of that. He may get part of his second objective, that the Ukrainians may agree not to join NATO. They're very unlikely to agree a cap on their armed forces, because that would invite another war. If they reduced their armed forces to some small figure, Russia would have an incentive to start another war, because it could easily defeat Ukraine. They're very unlikely to say that. Indeed, if I were president of Ukraine, I'd strongly be considering developing nuclear weapons. Ukraine had nuclear weapons in the early 1990s when the Soviet Union collapsed. There were nuclear weapons on Ukrainian territory, which became Ukraine's. And Ukraine agreed to give them up to denuclearize Europe and make Europe a safer place. Well, if it had kept those nuclear weapons, Putin would not have invaded, Hmm. because he would have faced a nuclear attack on his country. So the Ukrainians will be regretting giving up those nuclear weapons. So Zelensky, if he's prevented from joining NATO, may well think the only way forward is to develop nuclear weapons. And that's what he may do. And he, he could even ask the United States to sell him nuclear weapons at a knockdown price. Yeah, You know, uh, that, would, that would be enough. So he's, Putin is unlikely to get his second, his, his, his second objective. And of course, again, that represents a massive escalation of the Ukrainian-Russian standoff. Because if Ukraine now goes nuclear, that makes it even more tense. It means to effectively moving India and Pakistan to Europe, and creating a nuclear standoff in Europe between two bitter rivals. So that creates a very dangerous situation. And the third objective, which is to essentially move NATO back to reverse the expansion of NATO, is very, very unlikely to get. So what this will lead to is a very long confrontation not just Ukraine on the European side, but the whole of NATO, and Russia on the other side.
0: So do you, think, do you think the risks that Putin has taken will be, for him, worth it, for want of a better phrase, in the long run? Because what he's done, he's um, put his regime at risk, hasn't he? And he's employed a lot of tactics which could have backfired. But do you think he will th- regard this as being worth it in the future?
1: I think he regards it, he's still, he's a very aggressive man, and he's, he has an extraordinary capacity, a willingness to take risk, which um, psychologists have always pointed out. That's the reason why he wasn't promoted in the KGB. He had the right background, the right education. So he should have written, risen to a high rank in the KGB, but he, didn't, he wasn't promoted to any high rank in the KGB. No. The reason was they didn't like his ability, his willingness to take a huge amount of risk. So it's a, very much a feature of his character. Well, he has taken a huge risk here. He will regard himself as having a good chance of coming off with an acceptable result. He may get a pledge by Ukraine not to join NATO, and he may seize all or part of eastern and southern Ukraine. And he would say that's okay. But I I doubt that a lot of people in Russia would agree with him. I think most Russians would disagree. One, he's killing an awful lot of Russians as well as an awful lot of Ukrainians. Yeah, it's, it's it's even in April. Uh, th- there were figures; Russian deaths have been put at fifteen thousand uh, already, which is more than the Soviet Union lost in the whole of its nine-year war in Afghanistan, and it lost in two months. So he, one, a lot of young Russians are dying, and their families will not like that. But going beyond that, what he's going to get is. One, very long-term sanctions on the Russian economy. It's hard to see these sanctions coming off. So that will weaken Russia's economy. Two, Ukraine will go into the European camp. It'll it'll now become more European if they join the EU. That's probably a long-term prospect. Ukraine will certainly arm to resist any future Russian attack. Ukraine will invest in defense for a long time to come. It may even try to develop nuclear weapons, which increases Russia's insecurity, not its security, if he says he's invading Ukraine to make Russia safer, he may, may well make Russia more unsafe. Because Ukraine may well go nuclear. And if it doesn't join NATO or cooperate with it, it will certainly politically support NATO, not militarily, but politically it will support it as part of the European camp. And Finland and Sweden are now joining NATO, or trying to, Turkey is a that. So militarily, Russian situation is actually becoming worse, not better. So I doubt that the Russian people will agree
0: with Putin. And well, that, does Putin see that, though? Does he, does he regard his situation as being worse, or is this just yet another risk he's, he's prepared to take?
1: Well, again, it's hard to put yourself in his mind. No. But he clearly regards, well, remember, for him, he's got to keep winning always. Hmm. Because if he stops winning, he knows full well that his authoritarian regime, Russia is not a real democracy, it's a sham democracy. It's really an authoritarian regime, which is run by a ruling class of people we call oligarchs, yeah. which just means very rich people. It's a kind of class society. I'm a historian of communism. Mm-hmm. Until, only until 31 years ago, the Soviet Union was a working class regime, and no one had any money, at least officially. Not even the party leaders had any money. The richest so the most powerful people in the entire country had no money at least officially unofficially they did but officially they did now only 30 years later russia is run by multi-billionaires putin's secret fortune is estimated anywhere between 35 billion and 200 billion dollars he's probably the richest man in the world yeah and it's all stolen and it's most of it's hidden in the west most of it's hidden in West and often British tax havens. Yeah. So for him, that's what he's sustaining, a very fragile regime. So he's got to be aggressive. He's always got to be aggressive because that's what he's sustaining. Because he knows if he fails, the likelihood is that r- r- democracy will make a resurgence in Russia, his regime will fall, his money will be seized, and he'll go to prison. Yeah. So he's got an incentive to take huge risks. Okay. So he would say he's coming off all right. And he'd say to the Russians, we're coming off all right. Most Russians, I think, will disagree with him, at least over time. Most Russians now support him. Most Russians accept the historical claim that Ukraine is part of Russia and Russia is getting its traditional lands back, which is what we thought when we seized the Falklands. And most British people agreed with that. We're getting what is ours back. But when they see the tens of thousands dead, Russians dead for nothing, really, because most of Ukraine will remain independent. When they see the international isolation of their country, at least it's not totally isolated actually, but it's isolated from places where many, many Russians want to be connected with, the West. And above all, that's where many Russians want to hide their money, because they value the rule of law which keeps their money safe in the West. So the people he's most jeopardizing are people with money. But his regime depends upon those people with money. It's an authoritarian system which essentially survives by graft and corruption. So he's alienating his own base, which is why the oligarchs are now being sanctioned. That's yeah. precisely why all the Western states are queuing up to sanction the oligarchs to make clear to him you're supporting Putin and you're stashing your stolen gains with us, but we won't allow you to do that anymore. And that's why the people who've, who allowed that to happen over 30 years are now being strongly criticized. Because that, many people say we should have imposed these sanctions decades, you know, to make clear to the oligarchs that they should not support Putin because he was just too dangerous
0: <clears throat> to us. What, what's the longevity of these sanctions? How long do they last? Because obviously they, there's a lot of very rich people, Putin's in a circle, who can't access funds and they can't trade. And there's all these restrictions on them. But do you, for them, is it just a waiting game? They're just going to sit it out until eventually these sanctions are lifted and then they go back to normal?
1: Now, that's what they would want to do, or they'll try and move. Well they'll, well, they'll try and, such wealth as they have, they'll try and move. Them, they're already doing So they're piling into the Gulf states, because the Gulf states are part of the Western international economy, really, but they're not imposing any sanctions. Yeah. Yes, they're not imposing any sanctions because the Gulf states are oil producers and Russia is a huge oil producer. So they're connected by the oil price, and their desire to maintain the oil price, which is what maintains the financial viability of the Gulf states, is crucial to them. So they they have always leaned towards Russia. Even Saudi Arabia, which is a very close ally of the United States, even it is sympathetic to Russia because it wants to reach an agreement with Russia on the oil price. So even the United States cannot rely 100% on Saudi Mm. Arabia or on the Gulf states. So they're piling their money into the Gulf states to get it out of the hands of the West, basically, and other places around the world and other available places. But not all of these places are willing to stand up to the West if the West choose, chooses to impose sanctions. So uh, but that's what they're trying to do. But Russia is caught between a rock and a hard place, which is that on the one hand, if, if they want to find financial stability and safety, they, they, the, the best place for them to do that is obviously in the West. The alternative is really China, but China will demand a huge political price that would turn Russia into, because Russia is so much smaller than China, not in geographical terms, but in demographic terms and economic terms, it's much, much smaller than China. So the closer Russia gets to China, the more it becomes a satellite of China. China will simply say, we'll make all the decisions now. And that that is one likely result. What you're seeing, what is happening in Russia is, Western companies are pulling out, disinvesting, and are therefore selling their assets in Russia, which, and they're doing it quickly, so they'll have to sell for basically a knockdown price. And the likeliest buyer, the country with the money, will be China. Chinese companies will buy these down, or buy these companies' assets for a song. But of course, that means that puts Russian industry in the pocket of the Chinese. And the Chinese will treat Russia like a satellite.
0: It's kind of what happened at the end of the Soviet Union when all the the assets were broken up and sold to the oligarchs then.
1: And for a song. For the second time in 30 years, they're being sold, Russia's assets are being sold, For a knockdown price to people who are not loyal to Russia. What the oligarchs immediately did was move all that money into western tax havens. British Virgin Islands, Cyprus, you name it, they moved all the money out. Russia has one of the highest rates of capital flight in the world. They've moved it out and therefore Russia lost its wealth. Its it's great assets, its mineral assets, were sold off for nothing. And all that money and income was moved into, into London, the London property market. And elsewhere, and then that'll happen again. Again, it'll be sold off to the Chinese at a knockdown price. The Chinese will take the profits and move them to Shanghai. So, uh, but that, that'll leave a much weaker Russia. As President Macron told Putin, he's just published the he's just published his last telephone conversation uh, before the war started uh, with Putin, and that is what he said to Putin before the the crisis. And the first phone call they had after he said to Putin. Your country will emerge weaker on this. This is a this is a tragic historic mistake. And that is what he meant. You will simply have more enemies at the end of it. The Western world will get bigger with the addition of Ukraine and, and Finland and Sweden will join, will join NATO, and your country will be poorer and all its wealth will go up to other countries, and, and therefore you'll emerge, uh, your country will emerge weaker than it was before.
0: Thank you for listening or watching if you're on youtube this show is available on apple podcasts spotify and all other platforms i hope you join us again